I, I've been to two Olympic Games now. I was very fortunate. I came on a time where we had two Olympic Games back to back, summer then winter, Tokyo, Beijing. Um, and I, uh, I was very lucky to be asked to come uh, along with Team USA to help, you know, provide services for those athletes there. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business of PT podcast. I'll be your host, JT Moore. In this podcast, we will be interviewing successful physical therapists and learning about their stories in the field of PT. We will discuss a variety of topics such as entrepreneurship, careers, and pathways in physical therapy, as well as important characteristics in becoming a great PT. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you liked it, make sure to subscribe to get updates when new podcasts are released. Thanks, everyone. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of having Chris Lefevre with us. Chris is a board-certified residency and fellowship-trained sports physical therapist. He is currently practicing out of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He provides physical therapy services and practice coverage to Olympic and Paralympic sports on campus, including the U.S. gymnastics, wrestling, shooting, cycling, pentathlon, fencing, judo, taekwondo, swimming, and boxing. Chris, thanks for coming on. Yeah, man, I appreciate you asking me to be on. This will be fun. Yeah, honestly, just going through your biography right there, you have, we have a lot to unpack, and it'll be really exciting to be able to share with the listeners everything that you've done so far in your career. But first, could you start off by introducing yourself to the audience and giving a little background of yourself? Yeah, yeah. Again, so uh, my name is Chris Fever. I'm a sports physical therapist, um, and I work out of Colorado Springs right now. Um, you know, we have a uh, multidisciplinary team here of uh, PTs, chiropractors, athletic trainers, and some medical staff. And I'm I'm one of our uh, four physical therapists that we have on staff here. But um, yeah, I guess so. Uh, you know, long story short, I'm from uh, Reading, Pennsylvania, which is outside of Philadelphia. And um, I did physical therapy school uh, at Slippery Rock University, which is just outside of Pittsburgh. You know, following that, uh, I went and did a residency in Houston at a place called the Ironman Sports Medicine Institute, and then did a division one fellowship at Duke University, where I worked with um, primarily football, basketball, and lacrosse, and like some other sports. Um, I mean, uh, kind of long story short uh, from there, um, got offered an opportunity here at the training center, which, uh, which I've been at for the last, uh, year and a half. And, um, there's certainly no other place like it. It is a, a really unique model of treatment. Um, but, uh, super blessed and thrilled to be here for sure. 
Yeah. And that's honestly really cool that you've been able to do all this in your career. And I wanted to go a little bit deeper into some of the things that you shared there. But first off, what got you into PT? Is that something that you had initially always planned on doing? Um, did you get introduced to that at an early age or how did you decide on wanting to get into the field of PT? Yeah, man, I, I don't have like any uh, revolutionary story, but I, I kind of grew up around it. Both my parents were occupational therapists. Okay. And, uh, you know, I think as I was uh, reaching into high school, I wasn't a bad kid, but I just didn't have a ton of direction. And uh, I had my eyes set on a film school. And I think, uh, God bless my parents, and they did the right thing. They actually wanted their son to have a job someday. So they kind of, um, I don't know, not funneled me down into uh, rehab, but um, they got me my mom, the clinic that my mom worked at, she got me a job as a physical therapy tech. And, you know, obviously most of your listeners know what a physical therapy tech is. You fold towels and do paperwork and you hang out with PTs, chat with the patients, and you're just another set of hands. And that was my first high school job. Um, and uh, I literally have never had another job outside of physical therapy from then uh, up until now. It's always been exercise related, physical therapy related. So long story short, um, some really, really good sports physical therapists um, kind of set me on a good path. And I just thought what they did um, with all their patients was so cool. And uh, being around that was a pretty heavy influence of why I went towards the rehab, toward the rehab route. Um, my mom worked primarily with uh, hands, hand therapists, and uh, I thought that was pretty boring compared to what I saw the PTs doing on the physical therapy side of things versus my mom on the occupational therapy side of things. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's kind of in the family history. I grew up around it and um, kind of stumbled my way into the sports world for sure. Gotcha. Yeah, that's very cool. You had at least somewhat of an introduction to the rehab world from your parents. And yeah. Got funneled from there. So that, I, and that and you kind of mentioned at the end of that. So you got into the sports world. You were surrounded by some great sports PTs, is what it sounds like. Was that kind of once you were introduced into that setting, did you realize, hey, that's my goal. That's what I want to get to. Or along the way, how did that? How did you get to where you're at right now? Yeah, you know, I think um, there's such a large group of uh, you know guys and girls as well that that go into physical therapy school with like they're like I'm going to be a sports physical therapist. Uh, and I kind of fit that generic stereotype. I knew from the start what I wanted to get into. Um, and, you know, had a ton of great, well-intentioned professors along the way that encourage you to look at the, the total picture. Um, and points on that later uh, that we can touch on that, uh, you know, I probably could have listened a little bit more in some of those classes, which came around back. And I'm talking like neuro, integumentary type stuff, uh, because I didn't use that quite in my outpatient uh, experience, but we use it a ton here. Um, at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center. So it's kind of full circle. But anyway, yeah, I, I, I went into PT school. I went into grad school knowing that sports was kind of the realm I wanted to go into. Very cool. Yeah. And honestly, let's, let's I mean, you mentioned that. So let's talk about it. How have you realized, and, I, and I've heard this from a couple of sports, is mm-hmm. learning that and really making sure that those those classes that may not seem applicable, right, initially, if you're thinking yeah. the sports realm, are so beneficial long-term. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, man. So I will say like... Um, so in my career so far, you know, I've done outpatient uh, sports, physical therapy. I've done Division One World, um, and now I've done the Olympic and Paralympic World. Uh, and this is by far the most, you know, unique of the three. But um, in physical therapy school, I remember my first test that I took was a neuroscience test. And um, I worked so hard. I studied my ass off. And uh I got the lowest grade in the class. I remember that that was such a formative, like core memory for me. And I got like uh, high fifties or low sixties. And I thought, Oh my goodness, 
will I ever make it out of this? And I, I say that because I, I try to show a little bit of vulnerability for anyone else who's experiencing that. Um, and I can say it turns out fine. But the funny thing is I just viewed neuroscience as just getting through. Like I, all I wanted to do was pass the class and move on to the core musculoskeletal classes. Uh, and I made it, I worked really hard and I got through it and things leveled out and everything was just fine. But, you know, I did the outpatient world, division one world, and uh, you know, you use it from time to time. Um, but then when I come here at the Olympic and Paralympic um, training center, uh, and half of our population that we work with is the Paralympic population. And a lot of these guys and girls have some pretty wild conditions um, that I wasn't familiar with. And thank God, um, they're great. They're great folks and they teach me uh, a ton from day to day, but things like spasticity and tone and clonus and complete versus incomplete spinal cord injuries uh, were all these things that I were super rusty on until I came here and had to brush up on them. Like, oh yeah, those neuroscience days do hold relevance. Um, and tegumentary, uh, we have random bruises and random skin things that show up uh, here in clinic, just randomly. Uh, thank goodness we have a great medical team. Um, our chief medical officer and our physician assistant, you know, handle most of the skin stuff. But if they're not here, uh, the athlete's going to need someone to look at it and someone to at least direct the next steps. And um, yeah, full circle, man. I just can't believe some of the things that <laughs> I thought I'd never use have reared their heads and we're right back to the start again. So it's, it's been, hum, um, it's been humbling for sure. That's good. No, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Like you said, they're great athletes as well, but yeah, they have those conditions that add an extra layer of complexity to what's going on and to make sure to give them the most adequate care. We have to be well knowledge in that. So yeah, no, thank you for highlighting that. I think yeah. that's good. I've, even I've realized just even in some of my settings, trying to implement more of that neuro into just even like the orthopedic sports setting has been it's been a fun challenge but yeah like i'm sure with that complexity that you have that's been really beneficial to to brush up on it again and and be using those to to benefit the athletes as much as possible that's definitely yep yeah i wanted to also kind of go back to a little bit of your of your background information that we shared. So you have been, you're board certified, residency and fellowship trained. How did you decide on, I wanted to go like going that route and saying, hey, getting the SCS is something that's important to me. And how do you felt, how have you felt that those things have really helped progress your career? Yeah, so I mean, um, I kind of went, I don't want to call it a traditional route. I think it's becoming more traditional these days. But when I graduated PT school in 2016, residency was so pretty niche. Uh, and I think it's becoming more mainstream now. A lot of companies see the benefit of having these programs and um, kind of homegrowing uh, physical therapists to be uh, really good clinicians. And then a lot of the time uh, you retain them in the system or they go off to do, you know, uh, bigger things somewhere else uh, in the sports world. But um, yeah, I remember like uh, the first week of physical therapy school, we had a a professor come in and speak to a class about residencies. His name is Dr. Casey Unresant. He, um, he works for Baylor um, right now on their staff and a uh, phenomenal guy and became a mentor of mine, but he stressed um, and highlighted all the different things that residency can offer. And I remember for whatever reason that stuck with me and that was like my goal um, throughout physical therapy school and um, uh, predominantly interested in sports. I looked a little bit into the ortho world but saw that was mostly spine focused in the, the, the ortho realm of things. Um, so applied for, you know, multiple different residencies and um, 
thankfully ended up at the Ironman Sports Medicine Institute, which, um, um, which is where I launched my career. Uh, the family there, the mentorship, the physician collaboration, sideline venue hours, um, observing and surgery, it all, it, it grew me so much in that year. Um, looking back now and, uh, what an awesome start uh, to my career as a PT. But, um, yeah, that being said, I, I worked at Ironman for about a year and a half afterwards. And I had just, um, an itch that I didn't quite scratch. Uh, I was still interested in professional sports. I was still interested in division one sports. I got a small taste of that. I didn't want to pigeonhole myself into upper extremity fellowships, which is one of the larger divisions of fellowships for, you know, sports PT. So I looked in division one fellowships, um, which are fellowships obviously centered around division one sports and, and was lucky enough to get into a Duke's program. So that being said, like, um, you know, these shouldn't be stepping stones. Like you don't have to do undergrad, grad school, residency fellowship to, to get a position that I've gotten. But for me, um, it did kind of help me blaze this trail and kind of set the foundation for what I needed to, to launch and, and to ultimately earn this role um that I, we, you know yes about the the uh, scs as well and um you know certainly that is a uh it's a big deal and uh, it's a big deal to become board certified in any any specialty but it certainly illustrates um your desire to um, be within this realm and that you have the experience with that knowledge base um to kind of do what you need to do in this setting and between these three things residency fellowship and and board specialization um, was enough to catch the attention of the interview panel here. And then uh, I flattered my way through the interview and uh, tricked him to uh, get me on board. If that answers your question. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, yeah. that's great. And I, yeah, so this is something that, yeah, I feel is a very unique setting, obviously, to be in. Did you ever imagine yourself working with the Olympic and Paralympic, Paralympic teams while you were in PT school? And how did you end up saying, hey, this is something I might be interested in. I want to look into that opportunity. How did that come across? Yeah, I... um. It's funny, the first place I traveled to outside of Pennsylvania was Colorado as a kid. I was, you know, probably early high school. And um, I just thought it was such a beautiful state. And uh, I had always heard about the, uh, the training center, but never really quite understood what it was. I never even like Googled it or looked it up, but it was always a thought I had in the back of my mind. And, um, you know, the beginning of my career in PT uh, took me to Houston and then took me to North Carolina. And the thoughts of Colorado kind of subsided. But, um, I can go into the story later of how I actually ended up here, but through some different involvement and some leadership roles with the American Academy of Sports PT, uh, metaphysical therapist here um, who gave me a heads up that a position was opening. And, and you know, suddenly um, I was like, you know what, that would be really, really cool. Um, you know, uh, your podcast probably mostly centers on, um, I'm sure lots of physical therapists in private practice who have created different niches for themselves, which is, which can be very lucrative in terms of, um, you know, having uh, traffic come through their clinics and people seeking you out because you have this one thing. Uh, I still kind of consider myself a bit of a generalist because we do work with so many different sports. And the thought of that really appealed to me. I, I, I don't think I'm ready yet in my career. I've been a PT six years now to focus in specifically on one joint or one sport or one type of athlete. Um, so the opportunity to come here and kind of do it all is very fun. And um, again, just, just lucky to be in this role. Yeah. And that's something that I, when I was reading over and I was talking with some of my colleagues today, I, while I was at work, just kind of talking about, we were going to have this interview. I thought that was such a cool thing that you're working with such high level athletes, right? I mean, the best of the best, but 
a gymnastics, like someone that's in gymnastics to wrestling, to shooting, to swimming, to boxing, to, like those are just so different in, in some of their movement and their like the mechanisms and how they're yep. functioning. How is that? I think it's such a big task, right? Cause like you said, people at that high level, typically they found someone that's niche. That's very specific to that. How has that been learning all of those different sports and what they entail and then implementing that into your treatment? Man, honestly, like I'm, I'm sure your other guests have talked about this, but just a lot of faking it until you make it. I mean, like I didn't even like pentathlon. I was like, penta, is that, is that five? Is that four? Like what, what are the five sports involved in this? <clears throat> and, uh, you know, everyone here, whether they're Olympic or on the Paralympic side of things, whether they have a mainstream sport like soccer or a niche sport like curling um everyone is generally really passionate about uh educating you on it and uh you know for the most part i think you can take care of a whole lot of athletes without understanding the deep intricacies of their sport for sure like if you're working with a pitcher you want to have some baseline knowledge of you know what injuries might present with that type of athlete but for the most part you can get through it you know it's a lot of load management um some biomechanics um Speaking the jargon of that sport is very important to kind of get a buy-in. But uh, man, I mean, uh, long answer short, uh, it's been really fun learning about all these different sports. And um, I, when I first started, I was a little nervous that I wasn't going to be able to kind of, you know, talk the game of each athlete. But you, you, you get up to speed real quick, especially uh, living at the training center where not only do they seek treatment for you, but they're actually they're practicing too. Um, which a lot of the times we're sidelined for and we'll, and we'll gain knowledge from there as well. Gotcha. Yeah. I'll, I'll be honest. I when I was going, going to the introduction. I feel like I stumbled upon pentathlon. Can you explain a little bit about that one? Cause that's the one I don't know. Uh, oh man. Put me on the spot here. Let's see if I can get all of them. But uh, <laughs> yeah, pentathlon is a, from what I understand uh, one of the oldest Olympic sports, it's a very niche sport. Uh, the five sports Let's see if I can get them is a uh, fencing, swimming, running, equestrian and uh, pistol shooting. So uh, pentathlon got a ton of attraction from Tokyo uh, where there was an incident where a, uh, a horse was just not having a very good day with, I think it was a German athlete. Um, and the German athlete was, you know, trying to get this horse under control. And then the coach of uh, that athlete kind of gave the horse a little, you know, kind of stuck on the butt. Um, and uh, kind of people had an uproar about this. And uh, from what I understand, they're actually removing equestrian now and adding in like an obstacle course. Uh, not, I hope it's a reasonable kind of uh, analogy, like metaphor kind of thing, but it's, it's going to look a lot like um, uh, what is it called? Like American Ninja Warrior kind of thing, like obstacle course ish oh, wow. type thing. So the sport continues to evolve. Um, it's very unique. We have a lot of good athletes here. Traditionally, America has not been the best at this. I think a lot of European countries, it's more ingrained in their culture, gotcha. but um, it's pretty wild trying to learn about the disciplines that these, that these yeah. guys and girls go through. Cause it's not one thing they're worried about. It's five different things and they're incredible. Yeah. That's, I mean, I just learned something new right there. I didn't even, didn't even realize that was all in one event. Yeah. So, okay. Very mm -hmm. cool. Yep. Nice. Yep. Um, so yeah, as far as like, what does the day in the life look like for you as a, as a PT for the Olympic and Paralympic teams? How does that work? Um, are there obviously there's certain peaks I'm, I'm taking as when you're going? And another question is, what is it like traveling? You've had both of, both of the summer and winter ones back yeah. to back. 
Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. So I'll do the day-to-day first. So um, to kind of explain to your viewers, like um, I'm sure you have viewers that know what an athletic training room feels like. You may know what an outpatient physical therapy clinic looks like. Um, and this is kind of a mix of the two. So the training center, imagine it's like a campus, except no one's going to class and uh, everyone's an athlete and they're training really hard. So you have, uh, you, go, you go to your training sessions, you know, whether that's one or two times a day, uh, whatever. Um, and then on, on campus, you have a food hall and then you have dormitories to stay if you qualify uh, to stay on campus. And then you have sports medicine. So you have these obviously different buildings and the athletes will go between the different four to get whatever services or do whatever work they have to do. Um, and sports medicine here, uh, you know, you, you walk in, uh, you can make appointments like a traditional outpatient clinic. Um, or you may just walk in and say, Hey, is someone around? I just need X, Y, Z. So it has a, it kind of has a hybrid feel. It's not exclusively a physical therapy clinic. Uh, we have both medical and rehabilitative staff. So rehab staff, we have athletic trainers, physical therapists, and chiropractors, and we truly work seamlessly together. Um, you know, a lot of different organizations will say multi, like multidisciplinary care and, uh, you get there and it's not, it doesn't quite hit that. We literally will treat like table to table next to each other on the floor. So it's, it's a very unique setting. Uh, we have our chief medical officer who is a DO. And then we have a physician assistant um, who works with him. And then um, we just hired on a new massage therapist. And then outside of these walls, we have sports psych and uh, exercise physiology, and dietetics, and the list goes on and on. Strength conditioning personnel. I hope I'm not missing anyone. But for a PT, we try to play to everyone's strengths. Um, our athletic trainers do most of our sideline, like practice coverage type stuff. And our physical therapists predominantly will stay in the clinic and work in a clinical setting. Um, but there are plenty of times where our athletic trainers are out traveling with teams um, and men's gymnastics might need someone to step in and be there in case something goes wrong or wrestling needs something. Um, or vice versa, sometimes we're shorthanded uh, staff and athletic trainers will leave sideline type stuff and come be in clinic. Um, so it just depends on the day. It's, it's kind of a really strange setup, but a very fun one. I've never experienced it anywhere else. Um, but that is predominantly what takes up most of my time on a day-to-day is, is clinical work um, and occasionally practice coverage. At this level, I'm sure as uh, many of your guests, like from the, the pro realm, will say a lot of communication. There are a lot of different meetings to ensure that everything is dialed in and communicated for a lot of our athletes, especially between coach and women's personnel, um, and, and, you know, families, you know, if, if that's requested as well. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a whole spattering of different things, man. Yeah. And then, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I, I mean, that just sounds like a, that very unique, right? Like you said, a very unique setting that I feel like most of us will don't have that opportunity to have, but it sounds very cool at the same time to be able to do all of that and just, yeah, like, I don't know, I, I, go ahead on as far as, as far as the big kind of peaks, obviously going to the Olympics and things like that. Share with us, share with us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so uh, obviously I, I've been to two Olympic games now. I was very fortunate. I came on a time where we had two Olympic games back to back, summer then winter, Tokyo, Beijing. Um, and I, uh, I was very lucky to be asked to come uh, along with Team USA to help, you know, provide services for those athletes there. For the majority of employees at the USOPC, it, uh, we do obviously need people here staffed on the ground for athletes who don't make the games or training to hopefully make 
the games after the next quad, after the next four years of training. So we need people here, um, but we do we do take quite a bit. Um, so it's just really interesting. So at Tokyo, um, I was not stationed in the Olympic Village, which is where typically everyone will visualize in their head with the games. But uh, Team USA basically rented out um, this rec center um, in the community. I think it was like 45 minutes away from the village. Um, and they basically, we, we put all our equipment there. We fully staffed it. We put up a fence around it, hired security. And we're like, uh, this little slice of land is America. <laughs> and uh, essentially what could happen is as an athlete, if you're training in the village, you're eating in the village, you have all the other countries there, facilities can sometimes be hard to uh, utilize and things can be really, really busy. And at the time COVID was uh, rampant and a, and a big concern. So the high performance center was like a little oasis, you know, they could schedule off time, hop on their shuttle with their team, come to the high performance center, get sports medicine, use the recovery services, get a bite to eat, train and do that all and uh, just a little, little bit of isolation from other countries. So that's where I was. I was at this center uh, 45 minutes away from the village um, providing care. And, um, you know, we did work hard. There is, you're on staff all day long. You know, uh, someone is always on call to make sure that that care is ready for an athlete should it be needed. But uh, honestly, there's a lot of downtime, which is sometimes a theme at this level of elite sports. And uh, you're just waiting for something to happen. And I, I can promise you something will happen, especially at events like this. But um, uh, it was just a very interesting setup. And then to compare and contrast for Beijing, I, I, I was stationed in the village. And, uh, you know, every country was housed uh, in a different building. Imagine like a big apartment complex tower. And uh, Team USA at their own tower. And, uh, you know, if uh, I forget the exact numbers of the floor, but just imagine, you know, first floor is lobby, second floor, uh, sports medicine, and then floors three through 14 are housing athletes. So if you're a figure skater and you needed to get work done at 8 p.m. on a Wednesday, we got you. Come on down to floor three and we'll make sure you're taken care of. Uh, different dynamics between my Tokyo and Beijing experiences, uh, but all hands on deck, every provider you could want. A lot of technology that we brought with to make sure we could service everyone, and um, it's quite the setup for sure. Yeah, that that sounds really really cool, and like you said, like, very different. It sounds like from both experiences, but yeah, that like as far as going through those, and you can kind of mentioned it. You have some downtime, but when those when those like moments do happen, are the injuries or the treatments are they a wide variety, and are they pretty complex because they're at such high levels and things can like more things can happen because of that? Or how does, I guess, the patient presentation come in? Is it a lot of chronic issues or more of just like high level things that may have gone awry in that moment? Yeah, I would say the majority of things, you know, at the two studies that I just described were more what we call like maintenance work, soft tissue work, quick manipulation here or there, some dry needling, and just keeping these guys and girls feeling good, addressing every little ache and pain that we can to get that last 0.01% polished up so they can go and perform at the level they need to. Um, you know, illness and sicknesses will come in and the medical crew would take care of that. And um, it just depends. It's kind of a unique setup. So while we did have these hubs that athletes could come, you know, get treatment at, there are also providers that are stationed at the different events. So you have providers next to the strips for fencing, 
You have providers for the guys and girls at equestrian, including the horses. You had uh, equine physiotherapists there as well. So like big traumatic stuff, say a guy gets thrown from a horse, is concussed, he's knocked out. Um, I wouldn't be the one responding to that. We're more in a clinical setting. Um, whereas the providers for that sport, they're called national governing bodies. Uh, they will have their own staff typically um, if, um, you know, if that uh, national governing body or sport is lucrative enough. Um, so like not to call out names, but like badminton would probably have less providers than like someone huge like um, USA track and field. So uh, we would see a lot of this stuff in clinic, but some of the bigger, heavier, traumatic, acute stuff is honestly managed sideline or at that venue by the staff that's brought by that sport. It's a super weird setup and I hope I explained that right. But um, we're there to serve as backup and kind of like um, a safety net. If any of the sports needed providers, they were shorthanded. Uh, the USOPC, uh, which is who I work for, is, is there to help in any way we can. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. I was, it was interesting to try to figure all that out, but I think that yeah. makes sense and you explained it well. Um, yeah. So like, as far as working it, it are the days, because you said you're on call at times, are the days long? I mean, I guess even just like at the facility, like at the training center and then also at the Olympics, are the days really long or how do they all work and how does that go about? Yeah, I think, um, you know, if I had to speak about it shooting from the hip, it's probably you know, 12 to 14 hours a day. I mean, you're there at, you know, seven or 8 AM and you're there until uh, seven or 8 PM, maybe a little bit longer, depending on when guys and girls are finishing, you know, uh, their time on the rink or, you know, they're getting off the field and getting uh, transported back to where they're staying for the night. And then uh, after that, uh, you know, we try to rotate it around. Someone is on call. There's always like a, um, a medical lead on call, a physician on call, and then there's typically like uh, rehab personnel. Um, and between those two people, they'll they'll take any calls in the middle of the night. God forbid someone gets like uh, sick at one a.m. or something big happens. There's always someone ready, um, and that's that's uh, communicated heavily to the athletes. Um, and you know they're encouraged to plug uh, sports med into their phone and the on call phone into their phone contacts so they can get a hold of us whenever they need us. Very cool. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that sounds like a very cool experience that you had to be able to go to both of them and, and learn and just, I mean, be around that. Like, that just sounds like a very, very unique opportunity. Yeah, man. It's pretty cool. <laughs> so, yeah. So being in the sports setting uh, now for a little bit of time, what have you felt have been some of the things that you really enjoyed and what are some of the things that you realized, Oh, I didn't really realize this was going to happen and maybe kind of say as more of a con, but just to be more, have the listeners be aware of those as they're going into those things that, you may have not had that foresight going into it. Yeah. I mean, um, obviously working. So we do not work with the general public here. So every athlete that I see, you know, is either Olympic or Paralympic level, or they are developing an athlete of a certain skill caliber that they uh, are allowed to receive services here on campus. So, you know, if you're like a fourth string training partner for uh, USA wrestling, we probably won't see you because your, your sport doesn't pay for those services for you, but you know, top guys and girls will, will come in and get services. Um, that being said, I'm, I'm going on a bit of a rant here, but, um, seeing entirely only athletes is very special. Uh, it's, uh, something that we all strive for and to attain that, um, has been a very big accomplishment for me. And, uh, I just, I couldn't be happier with the setup. 
I will say, um, you know, to, to PTs out there in the outpatient world and uh, there's treating the general public and you're treating the geriatric crowd, like um, <laughs> patients are frustrating no matter where you go. Um, just please appreciate that even if your caseload is entirely all athletic, you're going to have athletes that you don't connect with just like you're going to have, not to stereotype, but your 80 year old fall risk that probably doesn't pump you up when you see him put on your schedule. And um, every job is going to have that, whether it's professional or division one or the Olympic Paralympic level, we all have the things that we don't like to do. Um, and that was, um, you know, that took me a little while to kind of wrap my head around. Um, and that would be one of the bigger things that I've noticed here. And, and I hope that can provide a sense of calm for some people just chomping up a bit and trying to make their break into the, the professional or elite sport world. Um, other things, sorry, go ahead. No, no, something. you're good. Yeah. Feel free. If you have other ones, that's, that was a really good topic that I liked that you, I mean, it's super applicable, I think to anybody, but that was, it was good to know that that still happens in that setting. Yeah, we, we can definitely unpack that if we want a little bit later, but other things. Yeah, I will say this. I was talking to a coworker the other day too, like, um, you know, when you get to this level, I think when I initially came on board, I felt that every day was going to be um, very mentally stimulating, like top of the top in the game, some of the best athletes in the world at their discipline. Um, and not every day feels like that. You know, there are a lot of days where I don't have any long-term post-op rehabs. And I have a lot of different athletes that come in asking for massage. Uh, and a lot of that massage um, can sometimes be very fluffy, meaning there's no real purpose and origin other than they're sore um, you know, from their two days or whatever it may be. And while that massage provides a service that is valuable, I mean, these athletes need to be taken care of, whether it's post-op, you know, rehab, which I, in my mind, I'm like, that's kind of the bread and butter of what PTs like, not to stereotype or speak for a profession, but that's what revs me up the most. That's what I enjoy. But, uh, you know, that's not what you're going to experience all the time, you know, um, you might be unpacking boxes of Gatorade at the division one level. You might, hell, you'll do that at the professional level too. And it's not always going to be a mentally stimulating job. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think, I, yeah. thank you for just like that authenticity of, of sharing those things that, yeah, I think in, in, at least in my mind, you think of, Oh, that's, I mean, you're the Olympics. You have to have just this top peak, but yeah, that, that sharing that and knowing getting a little glimpse of that are things that I can never imagine. Right. But like, but you being able to experience that and just realizing, okay, yeah, there, there are some things that you don't love, but it's still such a, I mean, obviously you, you love being there, but there's things that don't review, like you said, rev you up as much as other things. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I, again, yeah, I just say these things because no one ever, no one ever told me this stuff. Um, and jobs like mine look so cool from the outside. And you know what, for the most part, they really are. It's really, it's quite the blessing, uh, to be in a position like this, but, um, yeah, you're going to have your hours where you're waiting for guys and girls to get out of film again at the division one level. And you're just like, what am I doing right now? And uh, Mer <laughs> Merit, one of your former guests, one of your former guests here on your podcast, uh, he calls it glaciering. I don't know if he talked about this when you uh -uh. share about it. Merit, Merit taught me this. Uh, glaciering is um, uh, moving slow and, and basically doing nothing. Uh, so it's <laughs> like you're just <laughs> and uh that will happen from time to time. And it's okay if there's anyone in, uh, listening to this who just made their break into the professional sports world and like, what is going on right now? We all experience it. 
Um, and I just try to take those moments um, <laughs> and uh, utilize them the best I can, but they happen. Okay. Yeah. I hadn't heard that. <laughs> that term. You didn't share that on the, on the episode. The yeah. Glacier. Yeah. Okay. Glacier in. <laughs> gotcha. Um, yeah. So as far as the, uh, you've out, gained a lot of experience in education throughout your career, one of the other questions I had is what has been some piece of con ed that you felt has really developed you as a clinician or really helped you progress in, in treatment and, and being able to help address with athletes and their needs. Is there any con ed that comes to mind that has really helped you? Yeah. You know what? Um, that's a good question. Um, it's funny. I've been a PT six years, but I haven't taken a ton of con ed because my residency and fellowship days have fulfilled a lot of the education I've needed mm -hmm. uh, to stay recent and to, and to stay licensed. Um, the bigger skills that I find here, and this is, this is probably a very stereotypical answer, but uh, we use dry needling a ton here. Athletes love it. Um, and certainly a provider that isn't able to give that um, and meet the demands of what athletes are requesting is, is certainly at a disadvantage. Um, I've taken uh, a bunch of different manipulation courses. So I'm, I'm up to par with that as well because athletes will come in asking for specific interventions. Whereas the general public, you know, you're teaching them about what you can offer. Uh, these guys and girls have been seen by, you know, a hundred different providers, um, in their life up until, you know, the time that they've been allowed to train here at the training center. And, uh, we'll come in asking for specific things. And those are some of the more requested ones. Um, I've never taken any coursework in Graston and BFR and some of that stuff, but we, we certainly use that as well. Uh, and if that gets you going to take, uh, uh, courses and that stuff to become, you know certified and, you know, level one or level two or whatever, of whatever different type of tape. Um, I have not pursued that, but I, I know some of the principles and it's, it's been enough for me. Um, yeah, yeah. Those are the two big ones. Okay. Yeah. And let's, I mean, if you wouldn't mind, let's dive a little deeper in that dry needling, obviously it's something that I've heard quite a few on the, mm -hmm. on the sports setting say they use it a lot and they find a lot of benefit. What have you found is your clinical experience and expertise with the value of dry needling in your, in your patient population and how they are able to respond to that and kind of your, your methodology and thoughts with it. Yeah. You know, um, I think dry needling is a powerful tool. I'm not so quite sure it does all the things that we say it does from a theoretical perspective. Um, whether you subscribe to the trigger point theory or you're providing it for different, uh, sensory benefits of, you know, blunting pain and, interrupting pain signal type thing. But regardless of whether I'm on board with it or not, or you're on board with it or not, athletes are gonna want it. And uh, you know, in the outpatient population, you may say, no, I, I'm gonna give you these different interventions. Um, and uh, this is rated uh, level A of evidence and what you've requested is a level C and I know what's best for you. I promise you, for 99.9% .9 of the time, you're not going to say that to a gold medalist. You're not going to say that to a professional <laughs> athlete. And you have to find a way to spin that and still provide the service that they're requesting, but thread in different things that you know are going to help in the long term. And um, yeah, so that being said, I, I probably probably 50% of my different appointments throughout the day are for dry needling specifically. And I'm fine with that. You know, we are safe with the way that we utilize it. You know, we are extremely conservative over lung fields. 
But uh, if they come in requesting it, we will give it to them. Now, that being said, uh, I know that they're getting the load that they need uh, for the injury that they have either threaded into their strength conditioning programming and next door with our, with our team there, or I have other appointments set up with them specifically for progressive loading. Um, and I, I try to deliver that the best I can, especially to our younger athletes that passive recovery modalities and, you know, passive interventions are wonderful and they provide transient short-term benefits, which are real. I don't deny that they help but the long-term changes are gonna be made with load. And however you package that load, I don't care. Strength conditioning, PT, rehab exercises, TRX, weightlifting, I don't care what you call it. Those are the things that are gonna make the long-term changes. And uh, you just gotta find the blend of that and deliver it in a way that your athlete's gonna buy into. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's a long story short. No, that's great. And honestly, I love that you shared that. And like you said, yeah, that, that can provide some relief, right? But really what's the biggest bang for your buck and helping them understand that in a way that has that patient buy-in, right? Because at the end of the day, if they don't have patient buy-in there, as much as you know, they don't, they don't care, right? They, they want to know, like, they want to know that you care about them and their needs. And then once that, once they have that buy-in to you, you really have, I have your best care in mind and I want to benefit you the best way possible. They're willing to do those other things. And you mentioned it there. I'm, I'm sure you've gained a lot of this through your education, but getting that, that progressive loading, what are some of the th- key points that you wish you would have learned sooner in that and knowing how to adequately progress that with patients and creating a specialized plan of care with that progressive loading? Anything like that you would say is valuable to sharing that? Yeah, I'll touch on just some different like global thoughts I have. Um, you know, I will say... Again, not to stereotype like the outpatient sports PT or the outpatient ortho PT, but I felt like in the settings that I grew up in, in the, the earlier years of, of my career, is that um, everyone wanted to load uh, and not loading was the wrong answer. And at this setting, whether it's Olympic, Paralympic, professional, whatever, college, um, <laughs> Sometimes load is not the answer. Like if you have someone that's doing two or three day practices, um, they're trying to fit in schoolwork and they're coming to you because they're hurting or they have X, Y, Z complaint, adding more load (laughs) that day is probably not the right answer. And I think a lot of that is uh, threaded into the egos that we have as physical therapists, especially in the sports world. And it took me a little while to settle into the idea of that. Um, we have a wonderful strength conditioning team next door. Um, and those guys and girls are great. And they hook us up so much with, um, loading our athletes and helping them become resilient and robust. And, um, you know, I appreciate that the majority of the programming that I think some of these athletes should get are already built into some of the programming next door. So I always try to remain mindful of that. Um, and the other thing I think I would tell like a younger version of myself, like <laughs> load, uh, is a stimulus load is a lot like fire, like fire. You can either keep yourself warm with, or you can burn your house down. So you have to use it as, you know, uh, with a medicinal kind of mindset, um, versus just going crazy with a huge program. Um, you may not need that for that athlete that day. Uh, you may need something that feels watered down or boring to you. And, uh, you know, regardless of what setting you're working in, 
remaining mindful of the other factors of what these athletes are doing in their everyday life between multiple practices and strength conditioning and uh, lots of competitions um, and finding where you fit into that um, and finding that lane and owning that lane and doing that very, very well will take you far because there are many PTs who miss the boat on this completely um, and they struggle and uh, they, they don't fit into the bigger picture of, of what the athlete needs for the best care. Yeah, honestly, I love that you shared that. I think yesterday, the day before that, um, Scott Dickinson, who's been on the podcast in the past, he created this next level device that's is, is for like strengthening of, of the cervical spine area. Sure. Um, and he he mentioned on there with a, 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 a guest on the podcast, and they related it to and that load is is very much like a, like a medicine that we give to patients, right? Yep. You can give that medicine to help them with the ailments that they're having, but if you give too much medicine to somebody, right, they can overdose from it, and they can it's it's a negative effect. Sure. And so I, I, I don't, when it when you said when you were talking about that, how the fire can warm you or, or burn you, I think it's yep. the same sense. I think they also kind of elaborated on how manual therapy is kind of like the surgery, right? That you use selectively in certain ways, but if you do surgery on everybody that's not always recommended or necessary but some people think oh i have to do that so i don't know it was a cool like thought process and you sharing that right there really reminded me of that like you don't always need to load somebody up if like you, these people are doing a lot of other things that may not be the answer all the time and knowing how to use the knowledge that we have to be creative with other things that we can do to help benefit them as well most definitely. And I think it just piggybacking off of that, um, again, with the progressive loading kind of idea, um, there are athletes that are going to have a ceiling in my mind. I, I think of it as like a rehabilitative ceiling. Like if there is something structurally or mechanically wrong, their ceiling is going to be lower than someone who, you know, is anatomically sound. And, um, you know, at this level, there are plenty of people that I don't quote unquote, cure, or I don't quote, or I don't get to their goals. And um, being really mindful not to be territorial is important because, uh, you know, prescription medication is a tool and that can be very helpful at times when done correctly with the best of intentions and directions. Um, and a lot of PTs hate that. And I, I know there is a, uh, you know, the whole movement to move away from pain medication. And I, I get that. And I'm not saying like lean heavily into that and give everyone pain medication, but there are times where these things uh, could be warranted in, in short doses. And when you have a good medical team behind you that can identify when an injection is warranted, when a prescription medication is warranted, when a surgical consult is warranted, man, that's when we shine. And uh, I don't think there should be any PT out there that feels ashamed that they couldn't get their patient there because Man, I mean, we're all in this together and uh, PTs who operate in isolation and think everything could be cured by load alone are missing the boat. A lot of things, you know, I assure you can be helped with progressive loading and thoughtful exercise prescription, but um, there can sometimes be a limit to this stuff. Yeah, perfect. Thank you for sharing that. That was really yeah, yeah. insightful. Um, yeah, and honestly, the, the time is, has flown by. I just want to, before we wrap up, um, there's a couple of questions that I always like to ask, and you kind of already highlighted one a little bit by saying what you could have said to your younger self. Um, but yeah, what is something that you'd wish you'd learned sooner in your career that's really helped you? Um, and then is there any other additional information or words of advice that you'd like to share? I think the biggest thing, and I say this mostly uh, to a younger version of myself, like, uh, completing a residency is good, 
completing a fellowship is good. Continuing education is good. These are all important things. But um, doing a residency uh, doesn't entitle you to anything. A lot of people will not give a shit that you did a residency. And that's really important to understand. I promise you it will develop you uh, far faster than if you did uh, the, you know, the traditional route of going out and um, just starting work. But there's nothing wrong with that route either. But I think when I finished residency and, uh, you know, I was a residency trained therapist, I thought that this entitled me to things. Um, and honestly, it changed how I interacted with people. It probably caused me to miss some different opportunities um, in the youth of my career. And it's only until now I'm on the other side of things that I realize, you know, um, that while it is really important, it just, it doesn't entitle you to the world. So I would just, um, to anyone completing residency or seeking residency, lean into that and just appreciate the bigger picture of what that experience is for. Uh, I promise it will take you far, but just be far more humble than I once was when I, when I first graduated. That would be the big thing because, um, man, that's where I struggled the most as a younger physical therapist. Other things that I wish I would have known. Huh. Man, I, I, I think that might be the big one. That's perfect. No, and that's, I think that's a really valuable thing to have that although, although you have those skills, make sure that you're humble and you're constantly gaining that knowledge. That's something that I feel like people that have really been great in, in their careers and professions in PT, the ability to learn from everybody that's surrounding them whether it be someone that could be seen as like a superior to them or just someone that's new in the field or any, any like aspect, just having that humility to gain as much knowledge from other people surrounding them. I think that is their desire to learn really from, from anyone around them has been such a big takeaway that I've taken from starting mm -hmm. this podcast is there's a constant desire to learn and learn from everybody, like everybody and anybody around you. So yeah, thank you for most, that. The most definitely. Yeah. Uh, again, a younger version of myself would not have succeeded here. Um, you know, if I, I did a sports physical therapy residency, right. And, uh, you know, I'm not an athletic trainer, but, um, I promise you the athletic trainers here run circles around me when we're doing uh, coverage or an acute injury happens, I'll be fine, but they are phenomenal. Uh, I'm competent with my manipulation skills, but I promise you our chiropractors who have done thousands over the course of their career compared to my hundreds, um, I learned from these guys and, uh, yeah, you just got to have the humility to realize this stuff. That's perfect. Thank you. Um, yeah. and if someone's interested in talking with you more, what would be the best way for them to contact you? Yeah, it would probably be best by email. Um, that is usually how I can, uh, uh, get back to people semi quickly and be articulate and intentional with my interactions. But, uh, my email is, uh, chris.lefever. My last name is spelled L E F E V E R at usopc.org and obviously that's my work email and um you feel free to hit me up there and I'd, I'd be happy to chat okay perfect yeah i'll make sure to add that into the show notes of this episode um, chris thank you for coming on honestly it's been really insightful to get the perspective of what it's been like working with the olympic and paralympic teams and really how you've grown and progressed throughout your career i've really been able to gain a lot of perspective on that and thank you for taking your time to share all of that Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me on. And I'm happy to share what little perspective I have. This is fun. Awesome. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Yeah, you as well.
Thanks everybody for listening to the podcast. I hope you liked that episode. If you did, make sure to subscribe and also leave a review. Thanks everybody and we'll see you next time.